Well, tonight we have an exciting passage of Scripture before us to consider as a church, as we seek as disciples here at Grace Chapel to follow Jesus in learning how to pray in accordance to God's will. And we started this journey off, if you recall, uh, two years ago by studying principles of prayer from the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And we've continued that journey by studying now Paul's prayers from the pages of the New Testament. And since Paul's prayers recorded in the New Testament are breathed out by God, by the Holy Spirit, they are perfect examples of what it looks like to pray in accordance to God's will. And as we're studying Paul's prayers, in order, uh, and as we're studying Paul's prayers, we are learning what to adore, appreciate, ask for, admonish, and amen in our own prayer lives. We've seen that we ought to adore God and all of His virtues and all of His uh, attributes. We've seen that we ought to appreciate Christ and all the heavenly blessings that come to us in Him. And lately, we've been studying what to ask for in our prayers. And after considering What we ought to ask for regarding those whose spiritual state is lost or in doubt, we're now diving into what to ask for regarding those who are in Christ. In other words, how do we pray for ourselves? And how do we pray for our brothers and sisters in Jesus? What things should we ask for both personally and relationally? Well, personally, we've seen uh, from 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9 that we can pray for physical deliverance as long as we remember and remain open to God's will and working in the midst of our affliction. We're physical beings. It is fine, it is appropriate, and it is right to lay our physical needs before God in prayer. But not only are we physical beings, we are also emotional beings. We laugh, we cry, we cheer, we sigh. It's it's who we are as those who are made in the image of God. We're emotional beings and it is good and it is right to lay our emotional needs before God in prayer as well. Paul demonstrates that in the New Testament by praying three times for people's emotional maturity. All of us have emotions, but not all of us have our emotions conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. There is emotional maturity that needs to happen from now until we enter glory. And so Paul prays for emotional maturity from three directions, I guess you could say, in the New Testament. He prays first for emotional fullness. We saw that last week from Romans 15, verse 13, when Paul prays, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So We, as believers, often get emotionally and spiritually drained and weary. Where ought we to turn at those times? We ought to turn to God through a prayerful reading of His Word so that we might be filled, that we might experience emotional fullness. We ought to go to God and pray over His Word for emotional fullness. Second, as emotional beings, we ought to pray for emotional firmness. Not only emotional fullness, but emotional firmness. We ought to pray, in other words, that our emotions would become stable and grounded. Not that we would not be absent of emotions, but that they would be stable and grounded. That they wouldn't be blown here and there and everywhere by every slight wind of circumstance or change that ever comes into our life. But that our emotions would rather become firmly grounded and secured to eternal, unchanging realities. We want a fullness of emotions, yes, 
But if we are to reflect Christ, we also want those fullness of emotions firmly grounded and stabilized in and by the truth. And we see Paul pray for this very thing in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16-17, when Paul writes these words, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So this is Paul praying for emotional firmness, and this is how we are to pray for each other as well. But before we dive in, let's just ask the Lord to bless our time as we study his word tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have tonight to draw together as a people and to study your word. Father, we thank you for how your word addresses every aspect of our being, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. And Father, we thank you that it is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. And so Father, we pray that you would teach us tonight by your spirit through your word so that we would understand how, by your grace, we might mature emotionally and be grounded in the truth in every aspect of our being. Teach us, guide us, and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said before, this is Paul praying for emotional firmness. This is what he says without all the modifying phrases that exist in this verse. Paul prays quite simply, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father comfort your hearts and establish them. Now the heart is scripture's term for our inner man. It's the seat of our will. It's the center of our thoughts. It's the source of our emotions. That is our heart. And so Paul is praying that our inner man, the source of who we are, even our emotions, would be, he says, comforted and established. Now why does Paul pray for emotional stability and firmness here. Just for really quickly for some context. The answer is because the Thessalonians had become emotionally unstable due to some unbiblical teaching concerning, as verse 1 of this chapter says, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and when we will be gathered together with him. I don't want to open up a basket case, but I'm going to try to keep this as simple as possible. Evidently, someone had gone into the Thessalonian church suggesting that the great and awful day of the Lord had begun and they as believers were going to go right through the midst of it. As Paul says in verse 2, the idea had shaken them in their minds. It had created literally turmoil within them and had stirred up anxiety and agitation like the waves of the sea. And it had also alarmed them, literally in the Greek, alarmed them to the point of wailing. Those Thessalonians had learned the Old Testament well from the Apostle Paul, that the coming day of the Lord was a day of wrath and of great judgment, a day of weeping and loud mourning. And therefore, the very idea that they as believers might possibly have to go through that day sent them into great clamor, distress, and wailing. And I would contend that if that indeed is your eschatology, that's the correct response. As Amos 5.18 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you look for the day of the Lord? Why would you hope in it, in other words? It is a day of darkness and not of light, of gloom and no darkness in it. 
See, those Paul taught Thessalonian believers understood correctly that the day of the Lord was, what the day of the Lord was. And there was nothing about the day of the Lord that those Thessalonians were looking forward to when they heard that they might have to go through it. And you know what's interesting, as an aside, is that Paul doesn't comfort the Thessalonians by correcting their understanding about the nature of the day of the Lord. He doesn't say, hey guys, you got it all wrong. Uh, He doesn't say, you know, the day of the Lord isn't that bad. He doesn't say, hey, you guys have forgotten that the day of the Lord is a time of salvation. He doesn't say, hey, it's just basically what we're going through now, just a little bit worse. He, He doesn't say that. No, Paul knew. Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says, that day is so great, there is no other day like it. It is a time of distress. And what is, how great of a distress? Verse 6 of that chapter says, why is every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? That's pretty severe. Those Thessalonians got it, and they were shook, and they were wailing. And so Paul doesn't comfort those Thessalonians by correcting a misunderstanding of the nature of the day of the Lord. They weren't misunderstanding its nature. They were dead on what they were misunderstanding, if I understand this passage correctly, was their participation in the day of the Lord. They were thinking they were going to have to go through that great and awful day. And so Paul clarified that they wouldn't have to, and he clarifies it in two ways. First, in verses 3 through 12, he talks how the great falling away the departure of the restraining one and the appearance of the lawless one hasn't happened yet, which would be a dead giveaway if you were living in the great day of the Lord, if you had somehow missed it. Second, in verses 13 through 17, Paul's argument is God hasn't called you to experience that. In contrast to the rumor that you've heard that he talks about at the beginning of chapter 2, he says in verses 13 through 17 that God has chosen you to be saved, he's called you to obtain the glory of Christ, and he's given you eternal comfort and good hope in Christ. And verse 15, the idea that you're going to have to somehow face the great and awful day of the Lord is not consistent with what Paul taught either by his spoken word or by his letter, namely 1 Thessalonians. So Paul says, if I'm understanding this chapter correctly, and different people interpret it different ways, don't be shaken or alarmed by such ideas. Remember what I have taught you. And that's in the context. In the context of all of that, he prays in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16-17, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them with every good work and word. He hasn't given you bad hope. He's given you really good hope. See, in light of all the confusion and all the anxiety and fears that we struggle with as we go through this life, whether it be you know wrong teaching from someone or whether it be trials and tribulations of our life, when we go through these fears and anxieties and struggles, Paul prays here that our inner man, the source of who we are, even our emotions, would be, he says, comforted and established. Now that word comfort That word comfort is parakaleo in the Greek, and it means to call to one side in order to comfort and encourage. The word picture is like that of a young boy who hurts himself while playing. And this happened actually in my own household this past week uh, with Ethan, our little five-year-old. He was running through the house like a crazy person, as he often does, and all of a sudden I hear a loud thump. And I run into the dining room, and he's on the floor, worked up, crying, and wailing, to use First Second Thessalonians term, wailing in pain over the circumstance that had just been thrust upon him, right? 
And so what do I do? I don't even have to think about it, right? I say, come here. I draw Ethan close to myself. I put my arms around him, and I hold him close until his tears slow down, his strength returns, and he can get back up and probably do something stupid again, right? That's what I, that's what I do. And that's exactly what Paul is praying for here with the absence of us doing something stupid again. See, there are times when we are running through life just fine. And then all of a sudden, life hits us like a freight train with a loud thump and we completely wipe out in so many ways, including emotionally. And in the pain, our inner man can become worked up and stirred up emotionally. As David says in Psalms 43, verse 5, he puts it this way, our souls can get cast down and our thoughts and emotions can be thrown into turmoil within us. Like the waves of the sea, our emotions can get worked up by the pains and the perils of this life. And we can become unsettled, we can become anxious, and we can become full of turmoil emotionally. And what we need as believers in those moments is we need someone to come alongside us, to draw us close, and to hold us fast until divine peace is spoken into the storms of our troubled hearts. In short, as Paul says here, we need the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father to comfort our hearts, to settle our emotions, and not only to settle them, but also to strengthen them. See, Paul prays not only that our hearts would be comforted, but he also prays that our hearts would be established. That is made strong or made firm. Paul is praying for emotional firmness, emotional stability and strength. Again, when Ethan fell and wiped out, I held him until not only his tears slowed down, but also his strength returned, and he was able to get back up and Go about his business again. That's what Paul is praying for here. He is praying that God would draw near to those Thessalonian believers and not only settle the storms of the emotions going through their hearts, but also strengthen their hearts in the truth, strengthen their emotions, as he says here, in every good work and word. And I'll get to that later. So we need emotional firmness. We need emotional firmness. And so where do we turn? We turn to the same God that Paul turns to here. Paul begins by saying now, and don't worry, I'll move through this quickly. He says now, that is in light of the truths that Paul has just shared in verses 13 through 14. If you were to look at them, it would be in light of the fact that God has chosen you for salvation. In light of the fact that God has called you through the gospel of his son. In light of the fact that the spirit is sanctifying you and you are believing the truth. And in light of the fact that all of this is leading up to us obtaining the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In light of all of these things that God has already done for you. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father comfort and establish your hearts. Notice this prayer is directed not only to God the Father, but also to our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and even more directly so, to Jesus. That is significant. See, when you study scripture, prayer is made to God alone, because he alone knows our need, and he alone is able and capable to meet our needs. And so the very fact that this prayer is directed to Jesus Christ himself as much as towards God the Father implies directly Jesus Christ's divinity, that he is God. He is equal to the Father. And so Paul prays that God the Son and God the Father would give those Thessalonian believers emotional fullness. Now, why would Paul do that? Why would he ask God for these specific things and expect God to answer? 
To put it another way, why would, God, why would Paul be so confident that God would give this emotional comfort and stability to us if we ask him? And the answer is because God already has shown himself to be the type of God who does that. Uh, notice how Paul describes both God the Son and God the Father here. He says that they are the God who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. You see, when we go to God asking for emotional comfort and stability, we are going to the God who has already demonstrated love towards us in Christ Jesus by giving to us eternal comfort and good hope in Christ through grace. If this evening you doubt whether God can settle and comfort the emotions that are stirring in your heart, you better believe it. He has already given you eternal comfort, eternal peace through the gospel of his Son. Eternal comfort that trials and time cannot touch. The comfort that Christ brings can never be touched. It is eternal. And do you doubt whether God can strengthen and establish your heart? He has already given you a strong and steadfast foundation of hope through the gospel, through the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. A good hope, well-founded, that will never disappoint you. The hope that Christ brings can never disappoint. It is good hope. And notice this eternal comfort and good hope, this settled stability comes to us how? Paul says through grace. Through grace. And this is a wonderful reminder that every ounce of comfort we ever experience and every sliver of hope that we ever behold in the gospel is all of God's grace. Everything we've experienced in Christ is a gift given to us, not because we are worthy or deserving, but they are gifts given to us because we are unworthy and undeserving of them. So again, going back to what Paul talks about in verses 13 through 15, all of those gifts are by God's grace alone. God chooses us. How? By His grace. God calls us in the gospel. How? By His grace. God sanctifies us by His Spirit. How? By His grace. He sustains our faith. How? By His grace. And He will glorify us someday. How? By His grace. And therefore Paul's reasoning is, the God who has showered upon us so much grace, who has given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, will surely comfort your hearts and establish them. All right, he will give you subtleness and stability of spirit by his grace as well. He will give you emotional firmness. How? In every good work and word. And there he's drawing a contrast, right? They were these Thessalonians were hearing bad words, right? That were driving them towards bad works of anxiety and fear. And so Paul says, No, if you want emotional firmness, go to good works, go to good words, and there you'll find peace. God gives us emotional firmness as we give ourselves by his grace to every good work and word. He gives us emotional firmness as we, by his grace, begin to believe what is right and begin to do what is right. He establishes our heart in every good work and word. And this is immensely helpful, by the way, because as I was thinking about it, this verse helps to shepherd us when we fall into dark times of emotional turmoil and instability and don't know how to get out. Right? When we are in so much spiritual darkness that we don't know how to proceed, so much emotional turmoil that we don't know the path forward, when our soul is downcast and our spirit is in turmoil within us, when we are emotionally unstable, we can ask ourselves these two questions. 
what am I believing right now? And is it good? And what am I doing right now? And is it good? Am I believing what God has told me to believe? And am I doing what God has told me to do? It is very easy to fall into a downcast spirit, to fall into despair and depression. What you need to ask yourself in those moments is, what am I believing right now? Is it truth or is it a lie? And then also sometimes you need to ask yourself is, what am I doing? Because as long as I'm sitting here on my bed doing nothing, it's not going to get better. I've got to start doing what is good as well as believing what is right whether I feel like it or not. Because God has promised that He gives us eternal comfort. He gives us comfort and stability when we believe what is right and when we do what is right. Combined. Combined. So this is a very helpful way to counsel ourselves when we're going through hard times and to counsel others. Sometimes we can believe everything right, but we aren't actually doing what is right. Sometimes we just need to start doing what we know is right and act in faith, trusting that God will give us, by His grace, comfort, settledness, and stability as we do what He's called us to do. What am I believing? What am I doing? If we draw near to God with questions like these in the midst of our trials and turmoils, He will come to us as our Father, And he will draw near, he will pull us to himself, and he will hold us fast until the Lord Jesus Christ speaks peace into the storms of our troubled hearts. He will do this by his grace alone. He has called us and he has chosen us for this very thing. And so let's keep that in mind as we pray for those who are on our prayer sheet tonight. Let's pray that in the midst of their hardships, in the midst of their trials, God would comfort and establish their heart through every good work and word for the glory of God. He who is promised is faithful, and he will surely do it.